Welcome everyone to the Impact Education Payer Talk CE program, applying real-world experience to better manage use of oncology biosimilars. I'm Jim Kenny, your host today, founder and president of JT Kenny LLC, a managed care pharmacy consulting practice. I worked for Harvard Pilgrim Healthcare for 38 years in pharmacy management. I'm also past president of the Academy of Managed Care Pharmacy and also a member of the Science Committee and Planning Board of the Biologics and Biosimilars Collective Intelligence Consortium or as we affectionately call it, the BBCIC. As of June 2022, 22 biosimilars have been launched for seven reference products in the U.S. These biosimilars are currently available in three therapeutic categories, oncology, supportive care, and immunology. The introduction of competition into the biologics market has led to dramatically lower prices, not only for biosimilars, but also for the reference products. So what we're going to do is we're going to identify key considerations associated with the adoption of oncology biosimilars for the treatment of lymphoma, colorectal, lung, and breast cancer, discuss the use of real-world experience, including implementation, product switching, and health economic data to address evidence gaps and reduce barriers to biosimilar utilization, and lastly, to hear about payer strategies that can incorporate real-world evidence to manage the use of biosimilars in oncology care and improve patient access to high-quality care and support positive clinical outcomes. I am joined today by Dr. Kate Lockhart, Executive Director of the BBCIC, and Dr. Raj Duggal, Clinical Manager, Oncology Pharmacy, Indiana University Health. Thanks for having me. Hello, nice to be here as well. Thank you both. So let's start first off. Dr. Lockhart, can you tell us a little bit about the work you lead at the BBCIC and how you see the use of real-world evidence for biosimilars in oncology? Sure, thanks, Jim. So first of all, the BBCIC was convened in 2015 by the Academy of Managed Care Pharmacy as a separate entity, as a multi-stakeholder research consortium that's focused on generating scientific evidence on biologics, including biosimilars, as you might guess from the name. Transparency is important to us. We take a science-driven approach to using real-world data. But I think it's important for us to first define what a biosimilar is and how they are regulated in the U.S. by the FDA. So biosimilar is a biologic medicine that's highly similar to a reference biologic with no clinically meaningful differences in structure, biologic activity, efficacy, safety, or immunogenicity profiles. A biosimilar is commonly less expensive than reference biologic, and therefore it may increase patient access to these effective treatments. And FDA requirements focus extensively on the molecular and functional assays and preclinical analyses to demonstrate biosimilarity, and there's less emphasis on clinical trials. FDA often requires clinical trials in at least one indication with outcomes to measure response rates, mortality, safety monitoring, et cetera, but they're not always required. Two important factors influencing future uptake of biosimilars are interchangeability and extrapolation. None of the commercially available biosimilar products in oncology are specifically designated as interchangeable yet, although we are seeing some in the immunology space. And so much of the data we have comes from real-world studies in these settings. So I'd like to also mention that as we're talking about real-world evidence, it's becoming a very important piece in biosimilar scientific evaluation. My organization, as I said, is focused on generating real-world evidence for oncology biosimilars, but for biosimilars in general. And we're exploring how to measure interchangeability in new and novel ways. And I think there's a lot of 
opportunities for more real world evidence. Yeah, Kate, I think that's a great point. I think one of the challenges, obviously, from the payer and provider perspective is lack of experience with this whole new concept of what a biosimilar is. And I think we've had an opportunity with some of the early launches to see some slow uptake and appreciation for the value that they bring. But I think the BBCIC fills a valuable need in the market to further help collect some of that real world evidence and present on it back to the community so that we can use these products appropriately. And, and certainly, hopefully, have some changes, if you will, in access and improved access than what we saw maybe with some of the earlier ones, because there was some confusion with that. Dr. Duggle, how do you see real-world evidence being used to fill in the evidence gaps around oncology biosimilars in your practice? So that's, that's a very good question and bringing up kind of a, I don't want to say controversial, but definitely a hot topic for practice. So to give a little bit of background on my practice site, so I'm a part of Indiana University Health here in Indiana. We're a part of a multi-hospital health system that spans the state and a good combination of clinical academic sites, as well as many more community practice locations. And so we have varying degrees of patients, as well as providers that are making up our clinician team. But really utilizing real-world evidence has become necessary from a day-to-day perspective as we figure out ways to integrate biosimilars into our practice. So from a health system perspective, similar to the payers, we're trying to find the best and safest product and and most cost-effective product for our institution to use. There's different variables to factor in, whether it's inpatient or outpatient. And in the oncology space, it's, it's predominantly an outpatient type discussion. But that's where we really start to see some of the payer requested impacts and kind of negotiating how we as a health system evaluate that aspect as well. But we really use real world evidence as a way to kind of bridge the gap for the missing data. So as Dr. Lockhart mentioned, there's a lot less of that clinical data upfront that brings the product to market. And so then we as an institution or as clinicians need to figure out when and how we can safely utilize these products moving forward. So as you mentioned, Dr. Kenny, there was a lot of effort done up front with our team in, in creating an education process and adoption process. And it's as the world of biosimilars has exploded, that has become so crucial to be able to continue to expand that practice moving forward. So we're really looking at a variety of different handouts and different issues that come up. Some of the challenges that we see are when the originator biologics are approved for certain indications that the biosimilars are not. And so that's where it comes into play with health systems, as well as the payers, kind of figuring out what is an appropriate use, what's a safe way that we can maybe extrapolate some data that we have or determine where it's appropriate to use these products specifically. So I think that's one real example where we are navigating uncharted territory, but really having clear expectations from the payers has helped make some of that decision-making process a little bit smoother on the clinician standpoint. Great. Thank you, Raj. So if we look at this comment, the FDA using real-world evidence to evaluate this post-launch safety, new indications, and payers and providers certainly are looking to this real-world data to make coverage and clinical decisions. Dr. Lockhart, are there limitations or considerations we should understand around the most commonly used real-world data? Sure. Thanks, Jim. So as we know, there's a ton of data that are collected every time a patient interacts with the healthcare system in the U.S. and elsewhere. We have electronic health records that record the clinical intervention. We have medical claims, billing data. There's disease registries, product registries. 
even patient reported information or data that's collected maybe on their mobile devices. So there's this wealth of real world data out there, but it's important to recognize that all of these data are collected for reasons other than research. So there's some challenges in using them for research because it's not gonna be perfect. They're not gonna necessarily answer all the questions of interest. So it's not as straightforward as sometimes we wish it were. Oncology especially is challenging, uh, particularly when you're looking at claims, billing claims, claims date type data sources, primarily because, well, there's a few reasons. One is there's not very often biomarker information Laboratory data is mm, sometimes there, sometimes available, sometimes not. It's certainly not consistent. There's no real information on cancer stage or cancer progression. Some of the outcomes that we're interested in for oncology, such as progression-free survival, overall survival, those are not readily available in claims-based sources. And so with oncology especially, we're really looking for ways to enrich the existing real-world data sources. For example, through linkages with claims and a registry, like a cancer registry or mortality registry. Surprisingly, mortality data are not very complete in claims records as well. Linkages between claims and EHR data can be very powerful. Claims data are longitudinal, so that's a strength for sure. But then if you are able to include the electronic health records, you can capture more clinical data, such as your cancer stage, your sometimes laboratory findings, and things like that that are not through administrative claims alone. And so there are some opportunities for real-world data platforms like the BBCIC. There's also an initiative at ASCO in their CancerLink database, which is leveraging electronic health records. Um, so there's an opportunity to collect more post-approval information on the safety and and efficacy in clinical practice that prescribers then can obviously contribute, but then to access real-world information on making treatment decisions for their patients. Given these limitations, do you see payers using real-world evidence to try to improve patient access or quality of care related to the oncology biosimilars? I think there certainly is an opportunity. I think, as you mentioned before, that it's not always clear. There's, There's not a an obvious roadmap for how to use real-world evidence, and I think we're learning on that along the way, but I think there is definitely an opportunity. Great. Dr. Duggle, what are you seeing in your practice? I think kind of how Dr. Lockhart described it is really very similar to what the clinician sees as well. So what we do within our health records have kind of all that data and that information about the patient. And I think the key is knowing when it's appropriate and safe to use the products for each specific patient scenario. I do see real world data starting to make its way into payer policies. I think when products first came out, there were, they were much more tied to for example, the indications listed in the package insert for each of the biosimilar products. But as we have more of that comfort with these products, more and more of the pairs are allowing sort of off-label use for some of those other indications. And so whether the indication wasn't granted because of different patient population, or if it's more related to an orphan drug indication where the original biologic still has 
patent exclusivity. Those are different factors that play into it, but we're, I would say, more and more seeing where biosimilars are being preferred and often requested from the payer side. And because of clinician comfort, we're easily able to integrate that into practice from a day-to-day perspective. Great. Can you give an example of real-world evidence use in oncology-based decision-making? Sure. Yeah. So, I mean, I think as uh, Bevacizumab is one good example, I think when it was first provided as a, a biosimilar product, we did not see some of the gynecologic indications on on the label itself. And so there was some confusion and question up front about whether or not that was a, a good patient population to use it in, whether it's related to surgery and or other considerations with that patient population. But as patients have attempted to use a biosimilar in that setting, we've started to see that indication expansion start to occur, which has been kind of exciting from our perspective as a cost savings initiative from the health system standpoint. Great. Kate, do you have an example you've discovered under BBCIC for real-world evidence use in oncology-based decision-making? Well, I think what we're seeing is utilization is definitely increasing across biosimilars in general, but particularly in the oncology space. We saw early success with the granulite colony stimulating factor products, the filgrastim and the pegfilgrastim products. They were some of the early products available in the U.S., and they are now used most commonly. The biosimilars are used, used most commonly. So I think from my perspective, we're observing that these clinical decisions are being made to use biosimilars, and the level of comfort seems to be increasing with both clinicians and payers. I think there's payers are becoming more and more comfortable with the idea of extrapolation, as Dr. Duggle was saying, to other indications that maybe weren't in the original label. And so I think from a pragmatic standpoint, we are seeing some utilization increases in oncology, especially. Yeah, and certainly that's a challenge for payers. And when we look at these products as they get approved, if the extrapolation is for all indications, it makes things easy, right? You can simply cover the product if you wish and not worry about that. I think an interesting side note on the indication story is if manufacturers offer copay assistance to patients, they can't offer copay assistance for an off-label indication. Now, they may not always know that unless there's some controls in place, but it does put the manufacturers at a slight cautionary disadvantage to say, well, if I don't have all of the indications that the reference drug has, I have to make sure that my copay assistance program is very clearly targeted only to those on-label indications. So patients can run into problems if they get prescribed a biosimilar that's off-label. Obviously, the, the payers don't support that and providers don't typically do that, but it could happen. They wouldn't necessarily have access to that assistance programming. So that certainly is a challenge. But I think it's really interesting as we gain that experience and providers become more comfortable. And also, we're moving into an era now where we've gone from primarily physician-administered biosimilar products, and we're moving into outpatient-administered ones, certainly with the pending adalimumab launch in the not-too-distant future and others that are outpatient. And it's a different design, a different benefit design. There's a different approach. You've got providers buying the products and dispensing them in a lot of cases. You've got payers insisting that they use their specialty pharmacy, so the distribution gets quite complex. But all these factors obviously create challenges for providers and patients to get easy, open access to these products when appropriate. Dr. Duggle, are there specific considerations for biosimilars in different cancer types? 
So absolutely. And I mean, as we've been talking, I think the number of biosimilars that have been approved over the last few years has significantly increased and we're seeing significant expansion in utilization across the board. And so there's a lot of things from the frontline perspective that we need to be aware of and kind of prepare for from our standpoint on the health system side. And so I, I kind of break it out into a couple of different buckets of considerations and I could probably talk for <laughs> an hour on this by itself. But when you look at it from a high level, I think the key things are there needs to be a systematic approach from a health system to evaluate, potentially bring on a biosimilar, making it its preferred product and moving it forward into the frontline operations. And just because I, as a health system, have a preferred product, that doesn't necessarily mean that that's the only product that we're going to be using because each individual payer will have their own preferred product as well. So our mix of payers is spread between commercial, some of our, our large commercial payers, but we have a, a good chunk of government payers as well. And then there's the bucket of folks who are uninsured or underinsured. And so each of them will require slightly different approaches to managing different considerations. But I think one key thing is health systems will look at it from a perspective of, I can have significant cost savings if I convert 100% of our patients to this one product. But because each individual payer has their own preferences, we're going to be stocking multiple biosimilars for each reference product. And that introduces some safety consideration risks. And while it's not necessarily likely going to harm a patient if they receive a different biosimilar product, but likely an error like that would be caught within the pharmacy and just result in drug waste. So I think there are med safety considerations that need to be kind of present in the conversation up front, but that's where we have education for clinicians, pharmacy, nursing, and, and different team members there will help kind of decrease some of those concerns. We've talked a little bit about interchangeability and indication extrapolation already. I think interchangeability is a moving target, as Dr. Lockhart mentioned, just because we don't really have a true approval or green light to interchange, but we're seeing it pretty regularly in practice. And that's either because a health system chooses to move products or a payer has a change, or even just a patient has a change in insurance. Those are all reasonable scenarios where an interchange would need to happen. And do we have some real world evidence to say that it's appropriate? Yes. And safe? Yes. But do we have kind of the green light to do it? Not quite yet. So that's where I think knowing how many times we can switch or what's appropriate is, is still a little bit gray on our clinician standpoint. Indication extrapolation, I think there's some clear guidance and what the FDA is looking at from getting indications for those biosimilars, but really the clinicians are taking it to the next level if there are off-label indications being considered as well. But also, as you mentioned about the patient impact, there are a handful of different things that need to be considered as well. So patients do need to be aware of what product they're receiving, whether it's the originator or a, a biosimilar product. And each state really has true guidance on what levels of either education or requirements there are for clinicians if patients are converting or going to a different product. But I know in, in my state, we are required to document education to the patient specifically if it's being interchanged from one product to an, another. So that's just something to factor in. But I think there is a little bit of misconception too. So we always talk about with biosimilars, 
there being significant cost savings. And I think the question comes back to who is benefiting from that cost savings. And I think you could argue really any player will get some benefit from it. But honestly, when I've done patient educations, I get that question. Will I see a lower copay if I receive a biosimilar product compared to the originator? And I don't really know the answer to that. So we're doing a lot of billing through medical benefits. I think there are some that are doing more through prescription benefits. And and that's a question that's a little nebulous. And so true dollar change for the patient is a big unknown. And then the additional layer going along with that is what are patients eligible for from either a free drug or a copay assistance program perspective. And so each each product has their own kind of criteria and and things to consider there. So that impact on out-of-pocket expense is a big unknown. We also look at ease of administration. And so this comes into play with a few of the different biologics out there. So when we look at growth factors, the originator for pegfograstim does have a much easier mode of administration with the on-body injector, allowing patients to decrease their number of visits to the institution, potentially applying it right after their chemotherapy infusion and not coming back versus the biosimilars being a self-injected product or requiring a patient to come back to the infusion center for that treatment. So just looking at it from an ease of administration perspective, those two have definite pros and cons. We can see a cost savings with the biosimilar for sure, but what is the impact to the patient? What's the ease of administration? What is kind of the downstream ramifications that go along with it? Similarly, with some of our other biologics, we've seen subcutaneous formulations provided now by the originator products. And so those are either offering home injection opportunity or much faster time in and out of the infusion area. And I can argue pros and cons for really both sides on that scenario, but there's a true impact to the patient. And so I think advocating for clinicians and patients having a voice in the conversation around what product they receive is very important moving forward and very specific to each drug that's out there on the market. Great. Thank you. I mean, you address a lot of key issues here and a couple of logistical ones I want to touch on briefly. One is certainly this concept of having to stock multiple biosimilars. I would suspect if the facility had enough leverage in the market, they might want to push back on that. I wouldn't want to be the pharmacy director or the purchasing agent at the hospital having to carry every biosimilar just to satisfy the needs of select plan designs, if you will. But that certainly is a challenge. But the other issue I want to touch on, I'm going to ask Kate a question when I finish, is this issue of biosimilars and the fact that the biosimilar is in effect biosimilar to the reference product, but the biosimilars are not biosimilars to each other, right? So I'm wondering if the BBCIC is looking into that concept, if we can detect or try to monitor potential differences among biosimilars when compared to each other, not just being compared to the original reference product. Any thoughts there, Kate? Yeah, a couple thoughts. First, just going back to this idea of interchangeability and indication extrapolation, I think this is a perfect opportunity for real-world evidence. As we're seeing in a clinical setting, it's happening, even if it's not official or it's not interchangeable by statutory definitions. So I think there's a real opportunity for real-world evidence to address some of these. It also addresses what happens with this product in a patient like me, so that can help some of the confidence in prescribers and patients as well when they can see how it's really working in, in the real world. So I think back to your original question, I think there's also some opportunities for my organization and looking at how switching patterns are occurring, evaluating outcomes and treatment response 
to a patient switching between products, there hasn't been much real discussion about biosimilar to biosimilar switching per se, but I think scientifically, there's no reason there should be any difference. You know, you say a biosimilar is biosimilar to its reference product, but not to its other biosimilar. If you really consider the fact that the challenge here is not that they're biosimilars, the challenge is that they are biologics. And a biologic, there's inherent variability. You can't make an identical copy. And if you really think about the science behind it, an originator product is a biosimilar to itself anyway. You're not going to have exactly the same dose, exactly the same molecule from dose to dose or vial to vial. So I think becoming comfortable with the fact that there is variability, but it doesn't matter clinically, I think that can help people in these areas where they have multiple biosimilars to be more comfortable about the fact that the science is there. And we are seeing that playing out. Great. Thank you very much. All right. Now we'd like to move into our case presentation as the next portion of the program. So we have a pharmacy director at a mid-sized regional health plan, and he just learned from his contracting lead that they have a new contract for a preferred trastuzumab biosimilar. And this is the first preferred biosimilar product this plan will be implementing. And the health plan has a national PBM and contracts with a third-party oncology management pathways program vendor. So the first question I'll give to you, Dr. Duggle, what tools and systems can they use to support the use of their preferred trastuzumab biosimilar? So I think there are a lot of different tools from the health system perspective for folks to kind of jump in on. And I think as you start to implement a biosimilar program, there are so many factors and I've kind of alluded to a little bit before, but kind of digging a little bit deeper here is making sure that all the key stakeholders for the institution are on the same page and ready to jump into the adoption process. So like I said, you need to have physicians engaged and excited about the cost savings or implementation. You need to have the pharmacy team on board and prepared for the downstream work that comes with it. So having leadership there is crucial, but it kind of goes beyond that because not only are pharmacists great educators for patients, but the nurses are the ones that are hanging the products. They're the ones that are face-to-face with the patient. And so they're also going to get a slew of questions. And so they need to be ready and prepared for the changes that are upcoming. In my institution, the other kind of key folks that are involved are the folks who are working through pre-certification as well as financial counseling throughout the process, just because those are other individuals with patient touch points and can provide a lot of education and can help make the process a lot smoother. But essentially, when you look at it, there are a lot of different ways that you can implement it into your practice. Ideally, having a standard formulary with a preferred product is ideal. And so the way that our institution works is we'll have our preferred product. And so whenever we're requesting pre-certification, that's the one that we ask for approval for first. And then if that is denied because of biosimilar is preferred, we can, we can always switch to an alternative product. So that's definitely one option there. But making everything transparent within the electronic medical record is helpful as well. I will say from a clinician perspective, our physicians and providers have become very comfortable with the concept of biosimilars and are no longer 
in general, requesting a specific product. And so they often leave the decision for which biosimilar is used up to institutional preference or payer requirement. And so making it an easy to navigate system within the EHR is helpful from from that physician standpoint, because they don't necessarily want to get the call to say, oh, you place an order for this one, but we need another product. So making it seamless within the EHR, but clear so that it's documented what product is administered, as well as having it tied to the right HICPIC-J code so that the claim is submitted correctly out to the, the payer as well. So I think those are some upfront considerations, but additional things to factor in are the supply chain for the product, cost savings for the institutions themselves, and figuring out how to get that education out for the entire health system itself. And as we're a member of many sites, it's kind of corralling um, the many and, and getting everybody on the same page for implementation as well. And I think as you implement one question that we always get is, is this just for new patients or is it for patients that are already on treatment and we're going to convert? And so those are two different conversations to have. And downstream, we'll have different repercussions for how you operationalize as a health system. Great. Thank you very much. Yeah. And we did list in this case, the highlight of the fact that this payer had a national PBM involved. Now you might be thinking, well, but these are infusible products. If we're focused on oncology, why would a PBM be involved? But what we are seeing in some instances is payers that are encouraging that these products be dispensed or processed through a specialty pharmacy. So now we've, we've sort of beginning to engage the PBM in some of these arrangements, as opposed to the traditional buy and bill methodology with providers. And then of course, we've got pathway vendors as well that may be working with health plans, which may have some preferences as well. So it certainly creates some interesting challenges in the dispensing area of the provider side to say, you know, what product am I supposed to use? What product can I use? Can I actually buy and build a product? Many of the institutions certainly push back on this concept of white bagging, where the prescription is filled at a specialty pharmacy and then shipped to the provider for infusion. And some state regulations are prohibiting white bagging as well, but it really is a complicated area. You have to really think about how it's applied. Have you run into any white bagging situations? Uh, I have. And it's something hard to navigate from the health system perspective. And so you're right, each health system will have their own policies on, on what's allowed. And each payer will have their kind of stance on what's allowed as well. And it's challenging to navigate. And I think when we look at some of the oncology medications, I think some of the fears around supply chain just come from handling of more hazardous medications. And, and that can be a consideration as well. And when you look at it from a frontline pharmacy perspective, I can completely understand the cost savings with running it through a, a prescription benefit plan. But when you add in additional logistical barriers along the way, it complicates the process and just puts people up for risk. So we absolutely see white bagging requests that come through. And we are one of the health systems that strive for buy and bill where we can, but I know that's maybe not what the future will allow or be at play as well. Sure. Well, if we come back to the case, Dr. Larkart, what utilization and patient characteristics for the use of trastuzumab are you seeing in the real world evidence you're able to collect? And what kind of market share would our pharmacy director expect to see? So we've had biosimilars for trastuzumab since 2019 that have been available. And there's not a lot of information on utilization or patient outcomes. So we've been looking into that as BBCIC as an organization. And we're finding that trastuzumab is another one of the, we'll call it the success stories for biosimilars. There are multiple biosimilars available 
for trastuzumab. And what we're seeing over time is that the utilization of the originator product, as you might expect with this market dynamics and market pressure, utilization of the originator product is decreasing over time. And the utilization of trastuzumab biosimilars is expanding over time. The data here is a couple of years old now. We are just in the process of repeating this study to get more recent in the longitudinal data to see how things have been shaping up after 2020. And I think our early data shows that we are seeing much more robust use of trastuzumab biosimilars. One thing that I think is really interesting to us as well is we're looking to see if the level of trastuzumab, the molecule use is changing over time at all based on the introduction of biosimilars, because then that has some implications on patient access to these treatments. So if we're seeing maybe they're being treated earlier in their course of disease, perhaps that leads to better outcomes. Perhaps patients who maybe would not have been able to use a trastuzumab product are now able to because the economics has shifting and because of that competition. So I think, you know, these are all evolving questions that I think are really important to the overall landscape of biosimilars in general. I think trastuzumab was really the first class where there have been multiple biosimilars available. And as you mentioned, you mentioned before, Jim, that when we see the adalimumab products coming out, there's like nine and counting biosimilars available that are going to blast off in 2023. And I think that is going to also change the story of biosimilars and interchangeability and all of the the whole picture. I like the way you put that blast off. That's a good one. That's what it's going to feel like uh, for our payers out there. Well, as more biosimilars become available post-approval, non-interventional studies describing biosimilar switching, comparative effectiveness or safety between switchers and non-switchers was going to play a key role. I think in generating that real-world evidence to inform clinical practices, policy decisions. As we talked about earlier, multiple switches between biosimilars of the same reference product are now a reality. It's going to become more common in the future as more into the market. Switching between two biosimilars of the same reference product is generally driven by affordability, cost to the health system, formulary requirements, as well as payer demand, as uh, Dr. Duggan mentioned, or patient coverage changes due to insurance changes, relocation, or travel. So that brings us to our next patient case. So we have a patient here who was recently diagnosed with diffuse large B-cell lymphoma, stage three, has completed two rounds of the six rounds of the R-CHOP treatment regimen, and the hospital recently decided to prefer the rituximab biosimilar Reabni, which is rituximab ARRX, and his provider did not object to the switch. So round three and four of the treatment was with R-CHOP using rituximab ARRX. Then our patient decides to retire from his job, and he moves 100 miles away to the family cabin. But the closest infusion center in his network prefers Ruxiance or Rituximab PVVR. He will switch from one biosimilar to another for rounds five and six, completing his treatment on Rituximab PVVR. So question for you, Dr. Lockhart, what's the evidence around switching between biosimilars of the same reference product related to safety and efficacy? I know we talked about this a little bit, but maybe you can shed a little more light on this particular issue. To be honest, there's not much research that's been done to date, there's not a lot of incentive for a manufacturer, for example, to conduct a head-to-head study with another biosimilar. And so we're relying on what's happening in the real world. Right now, it's been primarily, the research for biosimilar to biosimilar switching has been primarily in the 
immunology space because there have been multiple biosimilars available. And the most data is coming out of Europe where they have much more experience with biosimilars. But there was a study that was done, a literature review that was done a few years ago that showed they, they were looking for all the studies on switching that were published worldwide. There were 90 of them, 90 studies, and they all showed really no, no real change in outcomes for patients. So that study was then repeated by a different group in about a year or two later, and they found, I think, about 198 studies that were looking at switching, most of them real-world studies. And so there is data, there are studies out there that are talking about switching. It's much less about biosimilar to biosimilar switching, but we did talk about this earlier, that the science behind it suggests that we shouldn't expect any difficulties. And I think this is one area where trastuzumab and this rituximab example is going to play out in the real world, particularly in the U.S., where you have these kind of changes in the continuum of care that occur. But there's not been any evidence to show any lack of effectiveness or any different safety profiles when a patient does switch. And I know that ASCO has a part of their platform is that they believe that biosimilars and reference products are considered equally effective. And so I think it's, again, getting down to this level of comfort that you really can feel okay that switching to a different product is really has no impact on your care. Great. Thank you. Dr. Duggal, do you see these real-world switching scenarios impacting clinician confidence in your setting, a switching between reference and biosimilar or between different biosimilars and oncology? Any thoughts on that? I do have thoughts. I definitely see scenarios like this happening fairly regularly, mostly driven from payer initiatives at this point when one product becomes preferred over another. And it definitely happens regularly in the oncology space. In my experience, our oncologists have a, a really high level of comfort with biosimilars and the original biologics. And they're they're not overly concerned in today's state about which product is being used. I think the one barrier that we come across is really having these changes occur regularly. And I think folks want to be able to lay out a plan and be consistent. And so I know we've talked about how several drugs have had kind of an explosion of, of biosimilars over time. Nobody wants to be changing products all the time. It's not like it's a generic that we can easily just sub in and out. There's a little bit more legwork that needs to happen on the operational side. And I don't think that it's the oncologists that are too concerned about that standpoint, but it's more seeing delays in care if we suddenly find out a new prior authorization is required or really working to make sure that it's clearly communicated with the patient when we get their consent and agreement to the plan to change. And, and while that conversation is relatively easy, I feel like most of our time is explaining the concept of biosimilars as opposed to kind of getting into the nitty gritty details of just being a, a different product. And so depending on the patient's understanding and ability to kind of in, engage in the conversation, sometimes it's a bit much information for them, but that's kind of where we see some of the, the different hurdles that we come across, but overall regularly seen and, and done within this practice. Yeah, I think it's an interesting comment. I think the issue early on in the sort of the whether biosimilars are going to have good uptake or not, people would suggest that patients are going to be concerned that they're getting a biosimilar. But of course, 
the only reason the patient would know they were getting a biosimilar if somebody told them they were, right? So it's not as though they're meeting with an oncologist and the oncologist says, I'm going to give you Ruxians, let's say, you know, they're going to say, fine, that's what I need to get. So I, I think if we can educate patients, if the question does come up and respond that way, I think you, you have some good suggestions there. All right, well, let's move on to the last main section here. And the question is whether biosimilars offer affordable treatment options for cancer patients in the U.S. And I'm going to ask you to comment on this first, Kate, if you would. Sure. So this is an example of a study that was done with bevacizumab. It's a very widely used product, obviously. Um, it's well characterized and is used for a variety of, of indications, oncology and even off-label in ophthalmology quite often. So there are a couple of biosimilars available in the U.S. now. In this study, they looked over time to assess the financial impact of introducing this biosimilar. In this case, it was bevacizumab BVZR. It was a modeling study. So they did took a hypothetical 10 million member health plan, and they were estimated to, to have been treated, the patients were estimated to have been treated with bevacizumab for about one to five years. And they found that even just with a relatively small annual market shift to the biosimilar bevacizumab, the annual cost savings was, was over $300,000. And cumulatively over time, savings were over $7 million after the introduction of the biosimilar. So we see this pattern repeating itself for other products as well. And I think there really is an opportunity. There was a study conducted by a large health system in the Western part of the United States, who by introducing biosimilar, they cut their biologics budget by $10 million just in 2019 alone, simply by switching to a biosimilar product as their preferred product. And they did some things to make it, as we were discussing earlier, to make it easier for clinicians, EMR tools and easily set up in a way so it doesn't disrupt workflow. Um, but that's a very real savings just in the biologics budget for that health system. So I think there's certainly opportunity by incorporating biosimilars. Yeah, very remarkable in terms of the degree of savings. Raj, any additional thoughts on that? I think the numbers speak volumes. Everybody looks at a slightly different number, though. So definitely from the health system standpoint, we're looking at drug purchase costs primarily. I think payers are kind of looking at expense and, and reimbursement models. And it all kind of varies with where the money is saved. And when you kind of factor in the PBMs and any other rebates, it becomes pretty complicated on where that money savings can be. I would like in future state to really see some more clarity around the patient impact itself and how their out-of-pocket expense has changed with biosimilars as well. Great. All right. Well, let's move now to our question and answer session. So I'm going to try the first one here and we'll see if Kate maybe will help us with this one. It seems a smart biosimilar manufacturer would want to come out of the gate with FDA-approved indications identical to the originator, yet we don't always see this. Why is this? Is there a cost per indication barrier that leads them to pursue only the expected most profitable indications? Is there any indication of awareness and incomplete indication profile may be inhibiting broader adoption of these and causing confusion? Do you have a sense on that one, Kate? Yeah, I mean, I think there is definitely awareness that not having the, the full slate of indications could be prohibitive. But the way the regulatory situation is it, with FDA is you don't have to do a clinical trial in every single indication of the originator product. You have to do it in one. That's the statutory requirements. And so it's what's not clear is 
why there are some biosimilars that don't get every indication. And it could be manufacturer strategy. It could be other kind of barriers. I wouldn't say that there's a cost per indication barrier per se, but I think it's definitely a consideration. That said, we recently conducted a survey of payers to just understand their approach to managing biosimilars. And they overwhelmingly were perfectly fine with using a biosimilar for every indication that the originator product is, even if it didn't have that explicit FDA indication. And so I think it can be a barrier. I'm not sure. It's hard to tell how much of a barrier it really is, I think, when you get down to the clinical practice. Yeah, I mean, I think the only thing that I would add is there may also be some patent issues around certain indications because sometimes they can have different patent lives, if you will, based on the indications. And also, in some cases, you'll have a drug that's being reviewed by the FDA and then a new indication comes forward as an approval. And it wasn't an indication at the time that the biosimilar package was sent in. And we did see that with the Nupogen, right? With the original Nupogen, there was an additional indication that came out right around the time that Zarzio launched to the market. And it didn't have that indication because it was not available at the time that the application was submitted. But you're absolutely right with your question, because we definitely want to see extrapolation of indications because it makes the job of the benefit managers much easier. Second question is, on average, what's the percentage of cost savings from using biosimilars in general versus reference drugs? Most references seem to note around 30%, but some note higher and lower savings. Maybe, Dr. Duggle, I don't know if you have any experience you can share in terms of the purchase side of the equation, what you might be seeing for you know average discounts, obviously sure. not bulging any contracts or anything. Right. Well, I, I don't know that I want to quote anything specific here, just because I will say every time we've implemented a product, it's been a unique experience. So every product is different, whether it's because of the indications, the routes of administration, different variables that go into play. But I will say that not all biosimilars have the same difference in price or anything from a purchasing standpoint. And so it's it's really inconsistent. We look at it from our perspective of purchase costs and anticipated reimbursement, but I would say that there's no standard across the board for what we would expect to say like, oh, it's absolutely a 30% reduction. It's it's kind of an individualized thing with each product. So it's kind of a hard thing to say. It's the nature of our healthcare system that there is an inherent lack of transparency in terms of contracting. And so, so that 30% number is you know, based upon some knowledge or some list pricing or something like that, but everybody is paying something different, you know, so it's really hard to quantify exactly what that savings is other than we do hear routinely that it is resulting in meaningful cost savings, at least to the health system or the the payer, the health plan. Yeah, it's interesting. So for a drug that's a medical benefit, we have a little more insight into what the cost might look like and what the discounts might be. So if we look at the infliximab biosimilars, the first one to launch was Inflectra by Hospira, and their WAC price, the wholesale acquisition cost, so that's you know no contracts, just sort of the catalog price, was 15% less than Remicade, reference drug. And at that time, the Remicade average sales price or average selling price that was published on the CMS website was about a 29% discount from WAC. So when Hospira launched, they kind of missed the mark. They actually launched at a higher price than the average price for the Janssen Remicade product. And then when Merck launched Renflexus, they launched that at a 35% WAC discount. So they obviously acknowledged the fact that, well, there's already some discounting in the market that we need to account for. So let's launch our product at a lower WAC price. And then of course, to Kate's point on top of that, 
then the pricing can get very variable. I mean, we can contract on top of that, right? Merck could have a 35% WAC discount, but also offer some type of additional discount or rebate or something on top of that. So it is confusing. But I think the 30% number is one that's commonly thrown out among the payer community to say, well, you know, we're expecting a 30% discount minimum on these types of products. But again, is it a 30% discount off of that list price? Is it a 30% discount off of the net price? Gets very fuzzy as you go through that. Well, at this point, would like to conclude the program. And I want to thank Drs. Duggle and Lockhart for their excellent contributions and insightful commentary. And-